Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week we are joined once again, back by popular demand, by Professor Gary Rensberg, who serves as the Blanche and Irving Laurie Professor of Jewish History in the Department of Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. His PhD and MA are from NYU. And Professor Rensberg is the author of seven books and almost 200 articles. And his most recent book is How the Bible is Written. Professor Rensberg, great to have you back with us. We explored some weeks ago Baha, where we drew on the theories of Mary Douglas, and we look forward very much to exploring Ekev with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here again, Simon. Thank you for the invitation. Wonderful. So we explored actually last week the opening paragraph of the Shema, and this week we encounter the second paragraph, of course, of the Shema, and very keen to explore with you, I think, just a few verses. And we read in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen the promises that if the Israelites hearken to God's word, God will cause the rain to fall and the crops to grow. Maybe as a first question, how crucial is the environmental context to this? And perhaps in contrast in the historical setting to Mesopotamia and Egypt, which were, of course, more river-based cultures. So it's not just in historical times, but obviously in modern times, since the nature has not changed. And the two great powers of the ancient world, Egypt and Mesopotamia, when we say Mesopotamia, we're talking about the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, people who are well known to history. They lived in what we call riverine societies. Egypt has the Nile. The land of Mesopotamia has the Tigris and Euphrates. And these are major rivers which flow, the Nile, of course, being the longest river. in the world. It almost never rains in Egypt. We can really talk about zero millimeters of rain for in much of Egypt. It might rain one day a year up in the Delta, you might get some Mediterranean rains, but it is totally non-dependent on rainfall. In Mesopotamia, you do get some rainfall, but it's not really required because you have the Tigris and Euphrates flowing the entire time. The Tigris and Euphrates are fed by the mountains to the far north in what is today eastern Turkey, where you have high mountains and snow, and of course, all of that melts and flows through those rivers. And Egypt, the sources of the Nile, of course, was one of the great quests of modern geographical research. And those are the high mountains of Central Africa, including Kilimanjaro and Ethiopia, the Ethiopian highlands, and the rainforest. And all of that rain and snow eventually feeds into the two branches of the Nile, which meet in Khartoum of Sudan and then flow northward through Egypt into the Mediterranean. 
they don't need rain. They just have water everywhere in these great rivers. And they learned very early on from our earliest attested documents 5,000 years ago, 3000 BCE. In both societies, they were irrigating their fields from the Nile and from the Tigris and Euphrates. In the case of Mesopotamia, they would build actual canals to connect the Tigris and Euphrates and then little irrigation channels. So they really a full-blown agricultural system. And anyone who's ever spent any time in Israel knows there are no major rivers. We always like to joke when I lead tours of Israel and we cross the Jordan River somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. I always make sure that the bus slows down and I tell people, this is the mighty Jordan. And of course, it's a trickle. It wouldn't even register as a river in the U.S. for sure. Uh, and in much of Europe and the UK as well. Israel has no major rivers, and it is totally dependent on rainfall. We should, of course, mention for those people who've been to Israel, obviously the Sea of Galilee or the Kinneret is a major reservoir of water. And in fact, is of course, the great reservoir of fresh water for the country today. But that's only because we have modern pumping techniques that can get the water out of the Kinneret. It is totally surrounded by mountains, and so it's a basin. And so one couldn't use that for agriculture in antiquity. And it's simply the rainfall. And you're absolutely right. Deuteronomy 11, verse 14, refers to the rainfall when God says, I will give you the rain or more the rain for your land in its time. And from that, you will gather your crops. So they knew this. They understood that their land was very different from Egypt and Mesopotamia. Historical issues aside, whether the Israelites were in Egypt or not, or whether Abraham came from the region of Mesopotamia, as the Bible says, what is, be, what is behind these stories, historians can debate. But the Israelites understood that their land was very different and it was dependent on rainfall. And it actually is their obedience to the mitzvot, according to their theological stance, which will produce uh, the rainfall, or if they do not, will limit the rainfall and bring devastation. They knew that without rain, there would be drought and famine. Thank you for such a, a wonderful guided talk, true exploration of the geography of the region. Turning to the second part of 1114, it's mentioned there, obviously, the important produce, grain, wine, and olive oil using perhaps unusual words, Dagan, Tirosha, and Yitzha, what's maybe special about this choice of language? And perhaps, if I might add, what's special maybe about the produce that is referenced there? So the three Hebrew words there, Dagan, Tirosh, and Yitzhar, uh, mean grain, wine, and oil, and when you say oil in the context of the, the land of Canaan, land of Israel, you're always talking about olive oil. That would be true of most of the Eastern Mediterranean, obviously, in, including uh, Greece and Crete and, and so on. So grain, wine, and olive oil. But Hebrew, the Hebrew language, let's talk about the words first, and then we'll talk about the items. Hebrew has well-known, recognizable words that one learns in Hebrew 101 class. The word for grain would basically be lechem, which of course we usually translate as bread, but it's a basic word in most vocabulary. The word for wine would be yayin, and the word for oil, olive oil, would be shemen. These are common words still used today in modern Hebrew. But the biblical text here 
uh, waxes poetic. It doesn't use these standard prosaic words. It uses rare words, which you do not learn in Hebrew 101, which you learn when you get to read the book of Deuteronomy. And the gan is the word for grain. And tirosh is the word for wine. And yitzhar is the word for olive oil. And I think the text using these words, because it wants to remind you of the poetry of Torah, and poetry elevates us. And we're talking about a covenant of relationship between God and the people of Israel, which is at the heart of the book of Deuteronomy. So instead of these basic words that we all know, uh, stop for a moment to think about these words, because otherwise you might just go right past these text, this portion of the text. And so you get these wonderful words, Dagan, Tirosh, and Yitzhar. I love those three words. By the way, there's also a linguistic universal. Whenever you put two or three words together in a series, the linguistic universal, English, Hebrew, etc., is that the shorter precedes the longer. So in the cases of two-word phrases like in English, bits and pieces, and nook and cranny and so on. And if you go to three words, we say hook, line, and sinker, uh, the fishing equipment, lock, stock, and barrel, the parts of the rifle, and so on. Uh, so similarly here, dagan, tirosh, and yitzhar. They're all two-syllable words, but linguistically, they're going from shorter to longer based on the vowels, the length of the vowels, and the number of consonants of these words. So I just also wanted to mention that there's no one there's no text that you could just skip over. We have to make comments about all of these things. Now, as far as the, uh, the content of these items are, uh, today, everybody talks about the Mediterranean triad. This is the rage of nutrition and healthy diet and healthy eating. And the Mediterranean triad are, are specifically these three items. You have bread, you have wine, and you have olive oil. You dip your bread in your olive oil. You could spice it up with a little za'atar or Gano or thyme or whatever it is, and uh, have a little wine on the side. This is what people do in Crete, in Greece, mainland Greece, in Sicily, in southern Italy, in Spain, obviously in Israel and neighboring countries like Lebanon. This is what constitutes a meal. And this is nothing new. The Mediterranean triad is already there in the biblical text. Remember, people did not eat a lot of meat. There was, they had dairy, but it wasn't the main part of the diet necessarily. This was what a meal meant, bread, wine, and olive oil. And I just absolutely, I absolutely love that. I have to now speak personally because my wife and I eat a plant-based diet, what are called vegans. We are vegans. These are our meals in our house as well, because these products are all from the earth. What a, what a wonderful meditation to dwell upon as we're reciting the Shema. Look forward to maybe doing more of more of that in, in Shul. Turning maybe to the next verse, we have the promise. Deuteronomy eleven fifteen says, And I will give you grass in your field for your cattle, and you shall eat, and you shall be sated. But it certainly feels, at least perhaps to most of us, disconnected as we are maybe more now to an agrarian lifestyle, that there's somewhat of a disconnect between the grass in the field and the eating and being satisfied. How do you read these lines? As someone who is a traditional Jew, 
how many times in my lifetime have I recited this passage because it is the second paragraph of the Shema. And some years ago, I'm reading a book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivorous Dilemma. Michael Pollan is a professor at University of California, Berkeley. And he investigated the whole issue of food and how we grow our food and how we transport our food. And of course, in the UK, you have a relatively small country and the transportation of food from one place to the other is not all that great. And even if you import fruits that grow in a more in a warmer climate, they're only coming from Spain or hot houses in the Netherlands. In the US, we transport lettuce from California to New Jersey, where I live for much of the year. And we're talking a distance now of 3,000 miles in refrigerated trucks and what that does to the environment. And Pollan wrote this wonderful book called The Omnivore's Dilemma, which he investigates all of these questions. And of course, he, the title of the book is, if I recall, he starts out in the first chapter by saying there are only two omnivores, real omnivores on the planet. And those are human beings and rats, which is to say, <laughs> we'll eat anything, right? If you take a, bit, a look at what humans as a whole population, that Rats as a whole population will eat, will eat anything. You and I may not eat dogs and cats, but we know they do in East Asia. Other people may need, may not eat avocados, but everything is available to everybody. He describes a farm in Virginia, and the farmer's name is Joel Salatin. And he once asked Joel Salatin, who runs an organic farm, what is he mainly? Is he a chicken farmer? Is he a cattle rancher? Is he a produce grower? And Joel Salatin's response was, I'm a grass farmer. And Michael Pollan focused on that passage. And I'm reading that. And I said, oh, that's now I understand what Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 15 says. God says, I will give you the grass in your field for your domesticated animals, your cattle, which includes both the larger cows and the smaller sheep and goats, which of course are much more common in Israel. And then you will eat and you will be sated. And I finally got understood what that meant. And Michael Pollan, channeling the voice of Joel Salatin, says this is what he does. He grows grass and it converts into hay. And that is used to sustain the animals. They are free range, so they're actually out there with the grass as well. But when it gets cold and in the winter, they're eating hay. And that gives the health of their animals and for those who eat meat or for those who eat dairy, you need healthy animals, obviously. And it's the grass that does that. And here my mind just went back 3,000 plus years to an ancient Israelite who understood this as the text of Deuteronomy already refers to. And let's just say the words again, right? I will give you, God says, I will give grass to your field, in your field, for your animals, and then you shall eat and be sated. If you're just growing crops, olives, grapes, cucumbers, whatever, there's a direct relationship between the rain and the produce. But if you're doing dairy, and if you're doing meat, there's this intermediate stage. The animals need their grass. It's just remarkable how the biblical text speaks to that community then and to our community today. There's also something very much about it that seems to indicate a notion of partnership between man and God in the sense that what man needs to work with what what is provided in order to achieve what is necessary. Do you see that? Absolutely. And I suspect that 
all religious traditions would have understood this. The Jewish one, of course, has the oneness of God who's above nature. But if you believe in a storm God like the ancient Canaanites did in the case of Baal or the Greeks with Zeus or indigenous peoples in Australia with their own religious traditions and their own understanding of the divine and so on, we all as humans, as part of the human condition, have to understand that our engagement with the divine and with nature are one and they're at the very heart of our religious traditions. And again, most of us live in urban environments, you in London, myself in metropolitan in New York. I make trips out to the farms or we buy from our local farmer's market where I speak to the farmers. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that. Every time we go into the store to buy any fruit or any vegetable or milk or whatever it is, we just have to constantly keep in mind that this is our understanding of who we are as humans and where our sustenance ultimately comes from. And all the more so now, as suddenly in London, we are facing once again near record-breaking temperatures and, and climate change is, is with us. And we in the, are we following the news from Europe and, of course, from Southern Europe even more, but whoever would have thought that there would be 40-degree days in the UK and we're having it here in, in much of the U.S. As, as well. It's very much on our minds at all times. No, absolutely. Maybe just drawing on both of the verses that we've explored, and how do you see the difference between the two verses? Well, I think verse 14 is speaking, as I said, to those people who grow crops, right? Because if you're talking about grain and wine and olive oil, these are people who grow crops. These are the agrarian people of ancient Israel, which was X percentage of the population. And the next verse is speaking to those people who were engaged in animal husbandry. I remind my students that probably in the ancient world, ancient Israel included, pick a number, 90% of the population was probably engaged in food production in one way or another. Uh, I think it's true of the UK, maybe a little bit more, but in the US, I, I, the statistic is staggering. I think only two or 3% of the population of this country produces the food for 100% of the population of this country. So many of us are no longer engaged in food production. This society, and so that's why we need to think about these words. We should be resonating with us, even if we don't grow our own crops or milk our own sheep and goats and press our own grapes and crush our own olives and so on. The people of ancient Israel, this was their livelihood. You know, there were other people who didn't. There were potters, there were metalsmiths, there were stone masons, but 90% of people were probably engaged very directly. And these two verses, I don't know what percentage of the population would have been agrarian in the sense of growing crops and what percent would have been in the animal husbandry work, but maybe of that 90%, two-thirds of the former, one-third of the latter, whatever the percentage would have been, these verses speak to the entire population who's engaged in that produ production of food. Maybe just finally, it, it seems that really all of what we've been exploring behind it is a covenantal promise. I wonder how you see this and how it fits into other covenantal references. So the core of the Torah, of course, if you observe the mitzvot, bounty will flow to you. And if you do not, the opposite will occur. 
And you get these lists of blessings and curses, both at the end of the book of Leviticus and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, near the end of the entire Torah. And those mitzvot are everything from ritual law, such as the observance of Shabbat and the festivals, and the moral covenantal kind of, of things, treatment of the poor, allowing your fields to be gleaned by those who are less needy than our, who are more, more needy than ourselves, less wealthy than ourselves. And there's nothing more rooted, pun intended, I guess, there's nothing more rooted than, than food. And so when the book of Deuteronomy starts talking about these things, it will talk about exile from your land later on in Deuteronomy 28. It will talk about all kinds of things that can befall you. Enemy population will come and swoop, swoop, sweep you away. But the most basic thing that every human can understand is what happens when you don't observe the commandments and you won't get the rain and you will not have a bountiful harvest. And your animals will suffer as well. So if you don't have a bountiful harvest, you may say, well, just have milk and meat. No, they're all affected by rain, including the health of our herds and flocks. Professor Rensberg, thank you so much for joining us again in your wonderful exploration of the geography and the diet. Reading the second paragraph of the Shema certainly won't be the same again. Thank you, Simon. We look forward to welcoming you again very soon. Thank you. It will be my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content that we have for you on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week.